0: Amen. Thank you, Barton family. Uh, so for the children in the room, all four candles are lit. That means it's almost Christmas. Are you excited? And for the adults, I know you're excited too. So uh, on Sunday, or sorry, on Saturday, uh, we will have our Christmas Eve service at 4 o'clock. And During our Christmas Eve service is when we light uh, the Christ candle. It is, if you're new with us, if you've come to the life of our church in the last year, uh, our Christmas Eve service is 45 minutes long. Okay, it's not long. Um, we sing Christmas carols, we read the Christmas story, we light the center candle of the wreath. I sh- clearly share the gospel with your friends and family that you invite to come on Christmas Eve, and if you invite them, they will come uh, with you. Uh, and then uh, we all we give you candles, and we all light candles. We sing uh, Silent Night, I think, is what we sing, and then uh, we're done. And so I hope that you are making plans and your, I'm sure, busy Christmas season Uh, to join us on Saturday. And then next Sunday, we will have church at what time? 10.30. 1030. That's right. Not 9.30. We'll have it at 10.30 um, because it is the Lord's Day. And so we're going to gather on the Lord's Day at 10.30 on Christmas Day. Uh, There will be no small groups. There will be preschool we worship. So if you have preschool children, you can bring them there. Uh, And then on New Year's Day, we will do the same thing at 10.30. So for the next two Sundays, we will gather together at 10.30 and not 9.30 uh, with no small groups, uh, but worship only on Christmas Day. We will have We Worship on New Year's Day. We will have both We Worship and our first through third graders who just walked out uh, will have kids worship on that day as well. So I hope if you are in town that you are making plans to be with us on Christmas Eve and on Christmas morning, and on New Year's morning, as we gather together as the body of Christ on Sundays, but also uh, on Christmas Eve. There are invitation cards in the lobby for you to invite your friends uh, to come and to be a part of Christmas Eve or Christmas Day uh, with us. I would would encourage you to do that. Don't leave those cards sitting there uh, after today. They do us no good, and so grab them on your way out. They're underneath the the praise and go wall. For those of you that uh, do like to read ahead and to study in the scriptures, I will be preaching from Galatians chapter 4, from, the, from the, the first part of Galatians chapter 4 next Sunday. We will take a break from our Mark series, and then we will be back in Mark on January the 1st. So just one break for Christmas, a special Christmas message next week uh, on what does it mean when Paul says that in the fullness of time, God did something to save us by sending uh, Jesus to us. So that's what we will consider together. Uh, next week. I'll invite you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 9 as we finish uh, the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark here in our uh, series through Mark. If you, as you found your place, I'll invite you to stand with me. We will pick up in verse 42 and read down through the end of the chapter. Mark writes for us the words of Jesus, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for your entire life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire." But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for our opportunity to gather as the body of Christ that is Nansman River Baptist Church, to sing praises to your name, to pray, to read your scripture, to be challenged by truth this morning. Thank you, God, for the encouragement that is your body and your word as it sanctifies us. God, we pray for uh, our time together next weekend on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, a time of the year where family and friends will readily gather with us. I ask God that you would help us not just me, but us, the body of Christ, to be clear with the gospel of those who gather around us next weekend? Would they see hope in Jesus, turn from their sin, and turn towards Christ? God, would you help us to uh, consider the demands of discipleship, the serious demand that comes with being a follower of Jesus? Now, from these verses in Mark 9, we ask in Christ's name amen you may be seated our sermon this morning is entitled the demands of discipleship there is a balance to reading and understanding and even preaching the scriptures that that we all must find on one hand The scriptures offer for us often an invitation to follow Christ by grace alone through faith alone to come to him who the scriptures tell us his yoke is easy and his burden is light to live in the freedom found in Christ because the truth sets us free. And on the other hand, there is a call to both sacrifice and service, to die to self, to take up one's cross and to follow him, counting the cost of discipleship, because discipleship is costly to be free and yet to be a slave at the same time. Today is a sermon that pushes in heavily into the second camp. It is no in no way intended to negate the truths of the first camp, that salvation is not earned but is given as a free gift of God, that we find true freedom in Christ alone, that we are wholly and fully forgiven of our sin, and to follow him is a burden that is light but we must find balance with what we will hear today and see in other places of scripture with that that truth. To favor one over the other is to fall into the trap of either liberalism or legalism, neither of which preach the whole counsel of God and in their extremes lead away from the gospel of Jesus. Now, Part of approaching the scriptures the way that we do on Sunday mornings as a church means I preach them as I come to them. And I realized during this Christmas season, and I will do this next week on Christmas day, on this Christmas season, maybe something that's a little more joyful is what you were expecting this morning. And as we stood and read the end of Mark 9, you thought, wow, this is a little heavy uh, for the week before Christmas. I understand that. The call to follow Christ is a serious one. It is one that demands much of us. And it is one that we will consider this morning, I believe, important as we come to this text. The main idea of our sermon is that discipleship is a serious undertaking with significant consequences for the believer and those around him or her. Discipleship is a serious undertaking. Significant consequences, both for you and the discipleship in your life has consequences for the person sitting next to you and who you will interact with this week and in your life. And so we'll see that this morning from the closing of Mark chapter 9, which stands as unique in the gospel of Mark and stands as unique in the four gospels contained within the New Testament that tell us the stories and teachings of the life of Jesus While only a few of the lines here in Mark chapter 9 are unique to the gospel of Mark, meaning other gospel accounts uh, tell us some of these same things outside of one or two lines here, Mark takes teachings of Jesus that Matthew and Luke include elsewhere in the ministry of Jesus and combines them in rapid succession. Some biblical scholars believe what Mark is recording for us here were actually early sayings of the New Testament church. As we'll walk through them, what you'll see is that one kind of naturally leads into another, that Mark takes one phrase and then takes a word from that phrase and then includes it in the next phrase and then takes a word from that phrase, including it in the next phrase, just kind of in rapid succession. All of them talking about being a disciple. As we get into this early section of the second half of Mark, I will remind you, the second half of Mark is about what Jesus must do on the cross and what we must do to follow him. And so it would stand to reason that here in these early verses of this second half of Mark that he, if this is, uh, if it were a uh, a collection of sayings adopted by the early church, some type of new Uh, some type of literary device for them to remember it well. He includes it here as a reminder all of things that Jesus said, but compressed together about the serious nature of discipleship because to follow Jesus is a serious undertaking. We'll divide these really into three sections. The first, the demand to consider closely our impact on the discipleship of others. All three of these are demands, meaning Jesus is telling us that if we are going to follow him, that we are going to do it as we have seen over the last several weeks on his terms, that he is going to tell us how to do it. And that because he is the leader and we are the father, he is the savior and we are the saved, he is the master and we are the slave, that we do as we are told. These are demands of our lives, And the first is that we have to consider closely our impact on the lives of others. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So this last section of Mark chapter nine begins obviously very seriously this warning about those who would cause a certain group of people to sin and the consequences that await those that are the cause of the sin. The question is, who is Jesus talking about? When he begins this phrase, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, many assume that Jesus is talking about children. In the previous section, Jesus has used a child as an example, he sets a child in the midst of the disciples, but the child was not the central focus. The child was merely an illustration. Remember what I told you, that children uh, were kind of seen as the lowest rung on the societal ladder in Jesus' day. And to take a child and to put them in the center of the room and say, come to me like this child, he's, he's, and, and receive these like children, don't, don't, don't only take people who are educated or don't only take people who, who are important, but, but receive even children unto me. Jesus is saying something about how we come to him. And so when we get to this next line, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, little ones is not necessarily intended to be taken literally, meaning Jesus isn't only talking about small people, We call them children as they come to Jesus. He's not only talking about children. He's talking about those who come to him as children. Who's in view here? The disciples are in view, meaning you and I are in view. The best way for us to view this is not to see this as talking about those who lead children to sin, although I would certainly say it includes those who lead children to sin. But this is talking about those who lead young, in, people who are young in their faith to sin, those who have come to Christ as children, not as literal children, but who have humbled themselves like children do before the Lord. So this is talking about those who are weaker in their faith, those who are immature in their faith, those who are new in their faith, those who are still children. And he gives this very clear warning to not lead them into sin, to not lead them to stumble. That the first demand of discipleship is to recognize that it is a team sport. That you are part of the body of Christ. That you don't stand alone as an individual, but you are a member of something. That you are a part of a whole. You are doing this following Jesus. You are doing the work of a disciple, not only as an individual, but a part of a collective. And as a part of this collective, there are varying levels of maturity that are present. There are people in our midst today who have come to faith more recently than others, there are people in our midst today who have been walking with Jesus for a matter of weeks or months, and there are, other that are others that have been walking with Jesus for decades. But even the length of time one walks with Jesus, while it should indicate levels of maturity, it doesn't always necessarily indicate this. And so there may be some less mature Christians in this room today who have been following Jesus for a very long time. So this isn't only talking about a matter of time, just like it's not only talking about a matter of age. There are mature Christians in this room who are in their 20s. And there are immature Christians in this room who may be in their 50s or 60s or 70s. This is talking about maturity. And there is a warning that as we... Do the work of discipleship together that we not cause those who are weaker in the faith, the little ones who have come to him, those who are new to Christ, new to following Christ, who may be susceptible to false doctrine, who may be susceptible to embracing ways of life that are not emblematic of those who follow Jesus. We are warned, do not lead them astray just a couple of ways I think that we see this in the church, that there is always going to be a temptation, I think, to lead new Christians towards licentiousness. And each culture and each expression of Christianity within a culture probably has a unique way that, that this shows up within the church. This isn't new for us. It's not like it's a new challenge in the church. It's just different in, in the day that we live in. But, but for us to put our arm around new Christians and say, you, you really don't need to worry about sacrificing this part of your life. It, it's okay. The Bible's old and antiquated. You don't really have to listen to that part of it. And we have a lot of people wanting to do that today, wanting to dismiss certain parts of Scripture. And we have to be really careful that we don't join in with the very first temptation and agree with the enemy who said, did God really say? More mature Christians, it is a demand of us that we protect the less mature among us and not and point them towards the truth of Scripture, not lead them to deny it. Second is in laziness, that we would, as mature Christians, give the example to less mature, that it is okay to just kind of Go through the Christian life, go through the motions, even go through serving within the midst of the church without the kind of zeal that the scriptures call us to. Oh, would we, as mature Christians, set an example for those who are less mature in us in our dedication to the worship and worship of God, the study of Scripture, the proclamation of the gospel, and the service of both the church of God and the community that God has placed us in. May we never grow tired in our own service of God and therefore show others that it is okay for them to grow tired in it. Jesus says, do not cause these little ones to sin. And then he tells us costly it is what the consequences of this are and they are meaningful he says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea now who is the he in this second part it is the one who causes the younger christian the less mature christian the little one to sin the consequences on the one who causes him to sin and look how dire it is Jesus paints a picture for the disciples. It would be better for him to have a great millstone. You say, what is a millstone? A millstone in an agrarian culture was something they would have all been able to picture. Large stone that if you attached an animal to it and walked it in a circle, it would grind grain. Large and heavy. And Jesus paints this picture of having one of these tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. But this goes even, there, there's a level of clarity that goes deeper for the disciples than it even does for us in our understanding of this. And here's why. And I'll you know, just illustrate this from you from Scripture really quickly. In Acts chapter 5, uh, Peter and the apostles have been arrested. And they've been placed in jail, and then they've been brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem. They're brought before them, and, and uh, the messenger from God appeared that night before and was like, you tell them the truth when you get there. And so that's what they do. They proclaim the gospel. It makes them all mad. They're, they're going to try to kill them. And they set them outside of the room. And one of the Pharisees that's a part of the council kind of rises up and and is going to kind of try to bring the temperature down in Acts chapter 5 among the Sanhedrin. And so he starts telling some stories, several in succession, of people who had tried to kind of rise up against Rome during their lifetime. And how those rising up from Rome, rising up against Rome during their lifetime had all been put down. And if it's from God, then it's going to be from God and they shouldn't try to stop it. And if it's not, it's eventually going to get put down anyway. And one of them is in Acts 5, 37, where it says, After him, Judas the Galilean, now this is not Judas that portrayed Jesus, this is a different guy, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. And so why is this important? Because Judas the Galilean, who Jesus would have been about 10 years old when this happened, all right? So this was 10, 12 years old, around the time that Jesus is going to the temple with his parents, all right? That there was a guy named Judas in the area where Jesus and the disciples were born. So they would have known, they would have been children, but they would have known this would have happened, rose up and told the people in Galilee not to participate in the Roman census, And you know what the Romans did to Judas and his followers? They tied stones around their necks and threw them into the Sea of Galilee. This is is how they were executed. It was was a fairly common form of execution when you rebelled against Rome to be drowned. And so imagine having witnessed something like that as a child, and then you're going to follow Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, now, you're going you're gonna to help people follow me, but if you lead those people to sin, it would be better for you to die in the way that those rebels did back when we were children. There, there's significant, meaningful consequences. We, we need to let this rest on our shoulders for a minute, Church. Because it's easy for us to point our finger maybe at people in our culture, people in our society, and say they're leading people astray. But this is intended for disciples to ask the question, am I leading people astray? Me. Am I heeding the warning of Jesus? Am I considering closely my impact on the discipleship of others Or by my example, or maybe even my words, am I teaching them something that is opposite of what scripture commands of them? Number two, the demand to consider our sin is egregious and to deal with it accordingly. Look at verses 43 through 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, just quickly, let me deal with a textual variant that is here because if I don't, people are gonna ask. Some of you may ask about, Probably most of our English translations in here don't have verse 44 and don't have verse 46. Maybe you just read this and you just didn't notice that they were there. They're not there. It's probably in a footnote. Those of you that have older translations of the English Bible have verse 44 and 46, and they are identical to verse 48. And here's why. We have, over the last several hundred years, discovered better manuscripts, meaning Older, closer to the original source manuscripts, closer to what was actually written than what was available, than when some Bibles, when early English Bibles were being translated. And so because of that, about one half of one percent of the New Testament contain are verses that are somewhat contested, meaning that the oldest manuscripts disagree with some of the later or newer manuscripts that are in other languages. The oldest manuscripts. The ones that are now available to us that archaeologists have found, that scholars have found, tell us most likely th- that citation from Isaiah which in, that's in verse 48 uh, was not in the original, but it really doesn't change what's happening here. And the only reason I addressed it is because I want you to know that that's what's going on, and it's why verse 44 and 46 uh, aren't in most modern translations of the scripture. It only includes that quotation in verse 48. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying here, taking off of sin, so sin is the word that Jesus has addressed first, kind of in a corporate sense, when you don't cause someone else to sin, now he's going to turn to your personal sin. Now he's going to address you and say, you need to consider your sin. And you need to recognize that your sin is serious and egregious. And you need to not only deal, not only see your sin as serious, you need to actually take steps to deal with it. And look at how Jesus does this. Jesus uses three words, hand, foot, and eye. And he says, if your hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. If your foot were to cause you to sin, you should cut it off. If your I were to cause you to sin, you should should tear it out. Hands, feet, and eyes. Jesus is taking a holistic approach to how we understand sin. That our hand is the things that we do. Our feet are the places that we go. Our eyes are the things that we see. That Jesus isn't only dealing with some sins. Jesus is saying for us to follow him, there is a demand that we recognize that both our hands, our feet, and our eyes can do things, take us places, and see things that are egregious. Now, Jesus could have used examples like the mind. He could have used examples like the tongue. These also are areas in which sin shows up in our lives. Jesus uses these three But we shouldn't dismiss the mind. We shouldn't dismiss the tongue. By using hand, foot, and eye, Jesus is saying, consider the whole self. Consider your whole self, recognizing that all of you is capable of sinning. But it is not the hand and the foot and the eye that actually sin. It's where sin shows up. What actually leads us to sin? Well, Jesus has already dealt with this in the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 7, starting verse 20, we read, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. So it is from within the heart, it is our sin nature that births sin and sometimes it shows up in our eyes, sometimes it shows up in our hands, sometimes it shows up in our feet, sometimes it shows up in our words, sometimes it shows up in our thinking, but it shows up externally. But it comes from our sin nature. And what does Jesus say in the end of chapter 9? He says, if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. Feet cause you sin, cut them off. Your eyes cause you sin, tear them out. Now, is Jesus actually telling us to literally and physically maim ourselves? No. If that were the case, then Christian churches would be full of people that can't do anything because we will have cut all of our limbs off and gouged out all of our eyes and cut all our tongues off, cut our ears. Jesus is not, he's using hyperbole. He's taking us to an extreme so that we will understand the seriousness of what is at stake. That our sin is serious. And he says it would be better for you if you would do that than to go into hell with two hands. It would be better for you to do that than to go into hell with two feet. It would be better for you to go into hell with two eyes than for you to just live a life that is okay with sin. The 17th century English theologian, John Owen, is famous for writing the words, be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen wrote this in one of his books that was published. You can still buy it today. I checked this morning. It's $10.99, a modern printing of it, $10.99 on Amazon. If you're going to Like, if you like stacking up books at the beginning of the year, some people do that. Mortification of Sin by John Owen. It's a really great book. It's old, okay? He's not been alive for a long time. Um, But it's great. And in that book, Owen gives nine directives for how to kill sin in your life. And this is really what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut off. Jesus is saying, take serious your sin and take serious steps to deal with it. Let me just quickly give you the nine that Owen lists. First, understand the severity of your sin. We are so quick to dismiss our sin, to just think it doesn't really matter. We must come to an understanding that if Jesus is going to say, your sin is worth cutting your hand off, that he means... Your sin is serious, and we should understand the severity of it. Number two, grasp the guilt, danger, and evil of your sin, that sin makes you guilty before God, that sin leads you away from God, and that sin is an affront to a holy and righteous God. Number three, load your conscience, Owen writes, with the guilt of your sin. In the chapter where he writes about this, he says that we're actually supposed to grapple with applying God's law to our lives, recognizing just how guilty we really are and to feel that guilt. Number four, to desire to be delivered, to actually want out of your sin. Number five, to consider your natural disposition and being naturally disposed to certain sins. And I believe this is true, that some people are naturally, some people ask, well, are certain people born certain ways? Well, sure. We're all born with certain natural dispositions to sin. By the way, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, release us from the guilt of that sin. It's just the way that our sin natures work. Some sins are more tempting to me than they are to you. And some sins are tempting, more tempting to you than they are to me. And here's what we need to do. If we're going to actually kill sin in our lives, we need to look at ourselves and be honest and say, here's where I am more likely to be tempted just because of my natural disposition. Number six, guard against the occasion and opportunity for sin. If you regularly go to a place where you sin, don't go there. Number seven, react swiftly. That the quicker you deal with your sin, the more easily you will kill that sin in your life. That if you allow a sin to fester for days or weeks or months or years, it will be far more difficult to put it to death in your life. Number eight, consider the majesty of God. So what does that have to do with sin? Well, when we consider the majesty of God, we then consider who we are in comparison to him. He is holy and we are not. The ninth is to not speak peace, Owen writes, about our sin until God speaks peace of it. Meaning we don't just kill sin once and say, okay, I'm done with this. No, we regularly look into our lives to find sin and by the power of God to root it out, to be killing sin. Because if we do not, it will be killing us and this is what Jesus says. Jesus says at the end of verse 47, just consider what he says about the eye, right? And if the eye causes sin, tear it out, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into heaven. So those who take their sin serious are those who enter the kingdom of God. These are the disciples of Jesus. Those who do not take their sin seriously are those who are thrown into hell. And then verse 48, which is a quotation from Isaiah, which we will consider in full, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Actually, beginning around Owen's time, so for the last few hundred years, there have been those that have wanted to tell us Jesus didn't actually teach on a real place called hell. Well, I don't know how you can read this and think Jesus didn't teach on a real place called hell. That Jesus is saying here, there is, and we're going to go to Isaiah 66 here in a minute. It's going to help us see this, that there are two destinations for men and women in this world. There is the destination of those who are in Christ, who are putting off sin and putting on Jesus, and whose reward is eternal life, and there are those who are still guilty of their sin, and their destination is eternal separation from God, paying the price of their sin in a real place called hell. Here's what we read in Isaiah 66, where Jesus is quoting directly from. We go back into Isaiah 66. We look at what he says before that, starting in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make. This This is eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. For new moon to from new moon to new moon and from sabbath to sabbath all flesh shall come to worship before me declares the Lord. Okay? So here is this picture of heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. This picture of eternal life where we those who are in Christ are with God. And then we get to the part where Jesus quotes, verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Hear me today, my friend. If you are here and you don't think your sin is serious, know this. God does. Jesus clearly tells us. That our sin is serious. The word of God from the very beginning where one sin separated God, separated man from God has told us this. Sin is serious. And it is serious enough that if you don't receive salvation through Jesus Christ alone who died in your place for your sins that you will be separated from God for all eternity In a real place where the worm does not die and the fire shall not be quenched. Number three, the demand to be purified and preserved by trial and sacrifice. Verse 49 for everyone will be salted with fire. So he takes the word fire and he brings it here for everyone will be salted by fire. Then verse 50, he takes the word salt carries it into another saying, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. When we consider salt and fire together, our mind should go to the Old Testament sacrificial system where salt and fire were the two prescribed elements of that system. To to make sacrifice before the Lord required two things the scripture tells us, fire and Salt. Fire represents testing in the scriptures. Fire is what tests us. The trials of life the Lord uses to burn away that which is unpleasing to him. He burns away in our lives that sin so that on the other side we come out purified. Salt in the ancient times and still in some cases today represents preservation Salt is that which preserves us in a world that would seek to taint us. Now we know because we now live in modern times that understands germ theory and bacteria that these things, these microorganisms that we can't see is what gets into food and causes it to spoil and to go rotten. What they understood was that if they pack things in salts, like we often do just in our refrigerators and freezers now, that it will preserve that. Purification and preservation is part of the Christian life. But these are not... enjoyable parts of christian life no one likes being purified no one likes being preserved it's difficult in the moment it's trying we, we heed the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 where he says, I, th- I appeal therefore, to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As we sacrifice ourselves, we are purified by the fires of trial and are per- preserved by the salt of the Lord. There is a distinct sense when we read this whole section but particularly when we get here to the salt and the fire here in this text of of this sense of we're in this for the long run that he's he's talking about people that 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 are in this not in a you know, spiritual high moment of discipleship, but that people are committed to following Jesus day in and day out, year after year, however long the Lord leads us here. Because discipleship is not easy. Discipleship is not quick, but discipleship is worth it. It's worth it to kill sin. It's worth it to be tested and tried by the fires of this world. It is worth it to be preserved by God so that the world does not cause us to sin. So what? We must obey the demands of Jesus to be his disciples. We must obey. As I began, there's this tension, there's this contrast between grace, which is greater than all of our sin, and freedom that we find in Jesus. These things are true, and I don't mean to negate them today. But when we come to Christ in those truths, we also recognize that he calls us to be his servant and slave, that he calls us to take up our cross. He calls us to mortify sin in our lives. He calls us to these things. He demands it of those who follow him. The Bible doesn't really give us room for a Christianity that doesn't see both of those things and say, I will find both unlimited, abounding grace and freedom in Christ, but then I will turn and be the living sacrifice demanded of me as I put off sin and put on Jesus. So my encouragement to you today is this, count the cost of discipleship. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Notice the tie here, the tie between counting the cost and being a disciple. Yes, yes. We don't do anything to earn it. The invitation to come to Christ is a free invitation that is grace upon grace, that is lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. And in that, We respond to the one who died in our place, giving his perfect life for my and your sinful one so that we might be saved. And our response to that is to say, yes, Jesus, you demand discipleship of me, a serious undertaking, and I will count the cost and I will follow you. So my my friend, have you counted the cost? following Jesus not just as your savior who offers you grace and freedom but your lord who says to follow me is a serious undertaking that comes with demands of our Lord that we could never fulfill on our own, but he, in his goodness towards us, helps us to daily put off the sin and the trappings of this world that so easily entangle us and gives us his goodness and righteousness and promises us eternal life. That is the demand the disciple? Have you answered it? Let's pray together. Father, would you help us because we are unable to do this on our own. In our sin nature, we love our sin too much. We love this world too much. We desire the false peace and temporal comfort that comes from being like our world. But you have called us to something greater, to follow you, to count the cost, and to do so in the way that you have instructed. So would you help us to do that? Would would you help us to consider the way that we are influencing the discipleship of others. Would you help us, God, to be rid of those nagging and persistent sins in our lives? Would you help us to withstand the fire of trial and preserve us to the end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you hear this truth of the gospel today, that Jesus died for you, And that you can't do anything about your sin, but he can. And you want to respond to that today. You say, I want to believe in that today. After the service, I'll be in the lobby. Come find me. Let's talk about how you can put your faith in Jesus. Church family, what we do now is we consider him the greatness and glory of our God as we stand and worship him together. Would you stand with me?